Welcome back to our dialogue podcast. I don't know if I mentioned that we've decided on a title of dialogue. And uh, I, I'm back here with uh, the Reverend Kevin Flynn. And uh, we are both ready to talk about Richard Hooker once again. We're going to be uh, starting on, I believe, ch- chapter five of the preface. That's right. So we're having a dialogue. And it's between ourselves, but obviously we're having a dialogue with Richard Hooker as well. Yes. Yeah, I think it's a dialogue with her. Yeah, and, and then there's a third thing where I find there's something wonderful about podcasts where having the two of us joining you as you're maybe driving or, I don't know, gardening, going for a walk, there's also, in a way, a dialogue between us and you, uh, the listener. I, I just, yes. I love the yes. intimacy of podcasts. Yeah. So, yeah, and so we're, and we're also calling it dialogue because while we're on Richard Hooker right now, there's nothing to prevent us from uh, pivoting to some other uh, delightful voice in uh, the Christian tradition. Indeed, there are a few. Or, uh, there are a few worthy voices out there. Indeed, <laughs> uh, we hope in our small way that we're contributing to those voices. Yes, indeed. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay, okay so let's. So we're going to start with. Uh, let, why don't you lead us off with the beginning of five? It's the the title is their call for a trial by debate. Okay. Despite all this you earnestly call for a public disputation to try your cause, as if you had a great deal more to say in its support than has yet appeared in your books. If all you want is to discuss these things in public, the universities are open to you, as far as I can tell. They have their yearly acts and commencements and many other disputations, held on both regular and special occasions, at which many cross-examinations of our own ecclesiastical discipline are carried out. The most learned among you are seldom or never absent from the greatest assemblies, and since I have known them to allow even foreign scholars to propose controversial theses there, surely they have not, I think, nor ever will, I presume, deny this privilege to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess he's he's trying to utilize the institutions of the day as a way of moderating this discussion. Indeed. So it's not as if they have no arena for um, promoting their ideas. Mm-hmm. It says they want more than just um, debates in universities, as he yeah. goes on in, in uh, part two here. Yes, to it. If, however, you are asking for some extraordinary political assembly, in which the laws currently in place had no power over you until in the hearing of thousands you all renounced your cause. Is it any surprise if those who decide such things think it dangerous to call an assembly of such divided minds? Should not men obey laws even if they go against their wishes? Or must they be suspended until somebody can convince you to be obedient? A law is the deed of the whole body politic, And if consider yourselves any part of it, then is the law even your deed also? Is it reasonable that we should listen to men who are trying to overturn which their own actions have ratified by their very own deed? Nobody denies that laws can be repealed and argued against by those who have passed them. But in such cases, the whole body is deliberating on which laws they should observe. In your case, you are a single part refusing to obey the laws the rest have agreed upon by due process. Hmm. 
this is so interesting reading this in our context today where there are sort of vast amounts of, um, I think, some pretty effective protest movements happening. Yes. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to know the... I mean, of course, he's. He, this is 400 years ago. Um, the context is different. In some ways, some of the issues must be, you know... They're still the same people. They're still human beings, still doing the very best that they can do in their context and in their time. That's right. He says, you know, you can't pick and choose your laws. We're all implicated in it together. It's possible to change them, but until they're changed in by due process, you, you don't get to step outside. So that's that's certainly a, a, a challenging call from our perspective. I uh -huh. think we're. People would say, well, if the law is fundamentally unjust, it, it has no application. And the only way to oppose, may be that the only way to, or it may seem that the only way to oppose it is to step outside of it. Uh, that's, um, clearly that's a debatable point. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they would, they would respond to this, you know, by saying that the, that it's stacked against them, like the, mm -hmm. like the, the conversations that they would want to have would not be possible in, in this context. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's very interesting. Well, I, I like where he goes, though. I think I, I think as he moves through this, it, it gets... Let, let, let's keep going. It's yes, very, yeah. it's very it's interesting. A, it develops. Nonetheless, yeah. since we have no fear, thank God, of bringing our case to public trial, if those whose decision matters condescend to you and give you your trial, I heartily wish that you would take part in an orderly and solemn conference in which either you would be persuaded or could persuade others to join your side. However, since you are trying to destroy something already in force and imposing on us something new, which we have neither accepted nor think ourselves bound to submit to, such a trial should only take place upon certain conditions. First, you must take the role of the plaintiff and accept that the burden of proof is on you to show both that we must abolish our currently existing order and also that we must adopt yours instead. Second, since the disagreements between us are many, before we ever get into particulars, we must agree to discuss general questions first, not putting aside any argument and turning to another until each point of the controversy is summarized, read, acknowledged, and concluded by both sides. Third, we must avoid the many problems that come up in ordinary extemporaneous conversation. If we were to argue about every individual point that one person felt like talking about, the rest would feel that another person would have represented their side better. Therefore, the greatest among you must choose a speaker to present on your behalf a case that you have all agreed upon. A copy of what he says must be dictated by a notary, and our side must have a reasonable amount of time to write a similar reply. Fourth, since a number of conferences have been carried out with less success because of false one-sided reports published afterwards, both sides must solemnly agree that only this same book containing what was said and dictated by notaries must be sent abroad and acknowledged as their own. <laughs> there are many other circumstances that should be added concerning time, place, and language, as well as measures to prevent rude or irrelevant speech and anything else necessary for the occasion. I'm reluctant to put forward my private opinion how such a public action should be carried about, carried out, so I am open to this scheme being corrected by those whose gravity and wisdom are worthy to overrule me. Yet, since such boldness is now commonplace, 
I hope that if others are excused for it, no one will be too quick to accuse me. <laughs> All right. That's so good, since boldness is now commonplace. <laughs> yes. That's great. I, I love this. I mean, I, it's so funny, right? Like, you, like I start, you know, where, where this starts is I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, it's just, it's just so easy when you see sort of a, uh, this sort of, in a sense of, I'm imagining a bit of a, I suppose I'm imposing my own time onto, the, onto their time. It's some sure. sort of a protest movement, you know, led by lay people in some ways or clergy, mm-hmm. you know, and he's saying like, you know, like there are laws in place, there are structures in place, there are rules. But then this, this final piece is just so beautiful. Like if you go through it, he's saying, okay, like let's acknowledge that the burden of proof is on you yes. because you're the ones that want to completely abolish our own laws and rebuild it you know in your this new idea that you have so it's the burden of proof is on is on you and then i just love this you know okay you know we we want to make sure what are some of these it's sort of going through point by yeah, point so he's, you know, he, he's in this respect here's he's a thoroughgoing process person you know if you want to have a debate oh, it's so good it's got to be carefully structured but you know to go back yes. to the point you were just raising the uh, um that the burden is on them to show that the innovation is worth overthrowing everything else is um, maybe a salutary reminder to an age in which, uh, whether we're quoting scripture or the inspiration of the spirit, you know, novelty is seems to have a kind of a value in its own right. Whereas he's saying, well, things can change, but you've got to show why the change is necessary rather than the holders of the status quo need to defend it. Yes. One, well, how how frequently is there this? Do we do we gloss over that transition mm-hmm. where you show something that's wrong in our society, and you get everybody to agree, and then you imply that well, obviously, if that's wrong, it's just I- implicit that my solution is the only solution. And it's like, hold on a second. (laughs) We can all agree that something isn't working and not all agree that your solution is the only solution. There could be several solutions to this problem. There could be some small incremental change that could fix this problem. Sure. You know? And and part part of the the way of getting at that, I think he's saying, is you've really got to decide what you're talking about. (laughs) Hence all this emphasis on the how to organize the the debate. General questions first and then moving on point by point and we're going to talk about only one thing at a time and you know you can't just get you know get your best um, proponents to to lay the case out rather than everybody sort of chiming in because um, it might uh, stimulate lots of feeling but you're going to get lost in the argument yes well I mean one of the things that I just love so much is he's saying okay so you're going to decide from your your people, you're gonna you're gonna choose one voice mm-hmm. that best represents the arguments of your position and your side. We will choose one voice. Yeah. You know, you'll 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 write this person. I guess I don't know if it's a debate. It's a speaker. They're gonna speak. Both sides will speak. We'll agree upon a notary. Right. Yes. We'll both will have one neutral notary that'll write down both arguments. Mm-hmm. And then because we've had problems in the past, where after the debate is concluded, one site will publish. Some other right? They'll add. I mean, you can just picture the, sure. you know, the the news reports where you have the debate, and then after, like in a modern debate, like in our time, you'll have a debate, and then, you know, you, you're you're reliant on your news organization to translate the debate yes. to you, and you have a right leaning organization and a left leaning organization, and they produce two totally different sets of analyses. 
yeah. of who won the debate and what they said and all the rest of it. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to have one neutral notary that will that will basically publish that. And all we're going to publish is the arguments of one side, the arguments of the other side. That will be published into a document, and that's what people will receive. No. You just read the statements. No, no room for alternative facts. Right. No room for alternative facts, because alternative facts were alive and well 400 years ago, just like they are today, right? Absolutely. We're just going to cut that out altogether. I think the other kind of attractive thing about this, is, as uh, sort of process-oriented as it, as it is, it, it really reflects good dialogue practice. You know, you give your best, you make your best case, and you present it to the best case of the other. You don't bring your best case against the worst arguments of the other. You're, you're dealing with yes. best speaks to best. Yes. Yeah, no straw man. Even though straw man arguments are so satisfying, right? Absolutely. You know, look at this look at this incompetent other side. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> so but but that's it. That's it for chapter five. It's a very short it's a very short little chapter. So we're gonna do I think we're planning on doing five and six, and I think we have time to do both. Yes. So he goes yeah. so six is the section six is called No End to Conflict Until Both Sides Submit to a Decisive Judgment. So okay. he begins, I do not know how much success God will grant to such a conference, but I do know that nature, scripture, and experience itself all teach us to end contentions by submitting to a definitive judicial decision, which neither side in a dispute may resist, no matter the pretense. Such a decision must be effective and strong. Other ways of ending disputes seldom succeed. I therefore want to know whether, for ending these strifes, you are ready to submit your cause to any judgment higher than yourselves, since you or your followers stand against the rightful guides of the Church and everyone else in it. Or will you obstinately persist until you can be persuaded to condemn yourselves? If this is your intention, all I can say is that I am sorry that you are those of whom God says, the way of peace have they not known. Romans 3.17 yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's good counsel I mean, for anybody going into d- debate. Are you actually willing to accept the decision yes. that's made? Yeah. Is it even possible? Mm-hmm. Like he said, is there anybody that you can think of beyond yourselves mm-hmm. that you would be comfortable being a neutral judge? Yeah. 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 And I, I think that that's one of the challenges I think today where for better or worse, you know, we're a lot of people are comfortable challenging every real institution we have, right? Whether it's um, the medical institutions, legal institutions, political institutions, church institutions. If you, if you truly believe that these institutions are entirely corrupt, it becomes incredibly difficult to quell debate because you are essentially saying there is no person in that institution that is a neutral body. And so how do you, how do you end an argument? You know, right. How do you end indeed? Or if, or is, the call for further dialogue or debate or whatever it is, just to cover for saying, ultimately, I want to get my own way. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know that you're louder and there are more people that are on your side and so you're just going to win just through... Sort of wearing them down. Wearing them down. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just... Uh, yeah. Okay. So, he says, there are only two ways for a conflict to end peaceably. A judicial decision made by someone chosen from among yourselves, or a similar decision made by a more universal authority. God told the Israelites to do the former in his law, 
The Spirit told the first Christians to do the latter. The ordinance of the law was this. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Deuteronomy 17, 8. When the church argued about whether Gentiles might be saved without circumcision or without obeying the ceremonial law of Moses, after much dissension and debate, they agreed to let the matter be decided at Jerusalem by a council. Can you give a strong enough reason why your opinions should not be overruled by a similar definitive judicial decision, whether in your favor or not, so that these tedious contentions may cease? Yeah. Actually, do you want to keep going? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. You might reply that you must not listen to any decision. No, not even if an angel from heaven should say otherwise, just as Paul the Apostle says in Galatians 1.8. Indeed, you may say, men and councils may err, and therefore, unless the decision satisfies your minds and you cannot find any fault with it, and, in a word, unless you see for yourselves that it is in accordance with the word of God, to submit to it would be to sin against your consciences. Consider, I beg you, first, that what Paul was so resolutely defending, Jesus Christ himself had revealed to him by direct revelation, so that there was no possibility of his mistaking it. You, however, are convinced of your opinions through your own probable surmisings, and such bold assertions, in him admirable, in you are rash. God was not ignorant that the priests and judges who would be chosen to give final decisions would often be deceived in their judgment. Nonetheless, it was better in God's eyes for a mistaken judgment to be made until the same authority mm -hmm. might later correct or reverse it, instead of such conflicts multiplying and dragging on. I'm not saying that many... I, I, yeah, do you want to jump in? Sorry, just to pause for a second. And we're about halfway through chapter, uh, the, the third argument. I, uh, I do find that... I just... I highlighted that piece. That, that, that is sort of... I don't know. That's a classic position right that the that the church being in constant conflict is it's is is harmful in and of itself right yes to be constantly in this position of you know argument and you know all these things that aren't happening because the church is is focused on this even if there's a judgment and even if the 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 decision is ultimately not entirely uh correct in the eyes of god sometimes it's better to have you know 50% correct decision and have conflict cease within the church than to have a perfect resolution. Right. And, and you know, in the, the larger argument going on here is, you know, how do you make decisions? Uh, and everybody agrees that Scripture is the first place uh, to, to tend, but, it's, but he's saying, you know, we nevertheless have to use our reason because it's not always clear what Scripture is going to say about particular cases. And if you cannot yes. come to an agreement by, you know, it's, it's not a matter of proof texting, you may actually have to appeal to a, a higher authority, a council or something, and hence his, his reference here to um, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, where um, mm -hmm. Origen commenting on that says, you know, um, they, uh, I'm paraphrasing now, but he says something to the effect that, you know, in, once they had the council, they could save all the time and energy that was being wasted and put it to the good use of spreading the gospel. 
that's the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Not at all. I did mean to do that, Kevin, Well, continue. <laughs> it, it is a dialogue, and we're just asking uh, Mr. Hooker just to pause for a moment. So, uh, <laughs> Indeed. All right, so he goes on saying, I'm not saying that men should do anything that their hearts tell them not to do, but of one thing they should be convinced, that in such legal disputes, it is the will of God that such men should submit to a final judicial sentence. Even if the decision seems to be utterly at odds with what is right in their private opinion, as doubtless the decisions made among the Jews often seemed to at least one side, yet God allowed them to do that which in their private judgment seemed, or perhaps even was, against the law. For if God is the author not of confusion but of peace, then he must be the author not of our refusal, but of our willingness to submit to some definitive sentence. Without this, we will never avoid confusion or reach a lasting peace. What would have been the point of the Council of Jerusalem if, after the decision was made, men simply continued defending their former opinions? Instead, after the decision was made, the debates ended. Matters were disputed before the final sentence was made. Afterwards, men were not to argue, but to obey. The judicial sentence ended their strife as their previous disputes never could. This was good enough grounds for any reasonable man's conscience to obey, regardless of his private opinion in that matter. We are so prone to willfulness and self-liking that strife will never end unless we abide by some sort of definitive sentence, which, once given, must stand and a necessity of silence imposed on both parties. So good. Mm. I rather like um, a necessity of silence imposed upon both parties. That is, if you're if the if, you're, of if your side wins, you don't get to crow about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because that just that really that just effectively continues the contention, doesn't it? If you're if yep. you're rubbing your opponent's face in it. I'm, I'll never forget when I was in seminary in the United States. Um, it was the when George W. Bush was reelected president and um, John Kerry was defeated as the Democratic challenger and the day after the presidential election and it was scheduled months in advance there was scheduled a silent retreat oh. <laughs> right and it was actually fabulously timed right because it was a it was a community where there were people on both Republicans and Democrats quite passionate yes um, and uh, and yeah and uh, George W. Bush was reelected and silence just no, we couldn't talk about it or anything and it was okay it was a, it was actually a healing um, retreat and there's a you know I think, I think there's an abiding challenge here that uh, at least I hear one in that um, you know whatever I may think about some decision that the church makes and heaven knows mm-hmm. you can always find something that you would say some damn fool thing the church has decided to do uh, at a certain point um you have to go along with it um, because yes. um, God is the author not of confusion but of peace, as he says. And um, even if the decision seems to be utterly at odds with what is right in your private opinion, nevertheless, the overriding uh, concern is for peace, for order, for um, uh, some measure of harmony so that uh, things can move forward. Well, and, and the church that, that he's advocating that I, 
I really want to be a part of. I think, to be honest, I think if there's a clear sense of obedience, if there's a clear sense, for example, at a, at a diocesan synod, mm-hmm. that after decisions are made, we will all be obedient to those decisions, yeah. Yeah. I think that actually will increase the rigor and passion of debate. Yes, good, right? good point. Because it, right? Because if there's this sense, if there's this nagging sense that if people raise too much debate, um, the resolution won't be um, respected, you know, because we've had clergy that are, you know, very thoughtful clergy that, you know, more or less agree with bishops and archdeacons on matters. If they were to create too much of a fuss, that might sow dissension in the church. I think Richard Hooker would say the opposite. It's like, no, 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 we need to have real, rigorous, genuine debate yes. on the floor of synod in front of the bishop, in front of all the, the, the powers and principalities of our diocesan structure, real, real debate with everybody acknowledging that when we, we come together and that debate is resolved and we make a decision as a church, that's the decision. Yeah. Yeah. I, would, I would love to embrace that, that culture. That's hard for us because you know, we're yes. so individualistic. Right, right. And so I think what, what, what happens instead is there's, there's, I find that there's not, there's sometimes I'm like, oh, would it, wouldn't it be more, there's a part of me that yearns for sort of a really big rough and tumble debate on a major theological issue. But I think that, yeah, but that, the, the resistance I get, you're right, is, is that once this can of worms is opened and the debate spills onto Facebook and <laughs> messaging boards and all the rest of it, it will never, like the genie's out of the bottle, right? right. You know, the, yeah. the toothpaste is out of the tube he, and that's it, you know? You didn't have to contend with uh, all these extra arenas for debate. Because, you know, because yeah. earlier on, he's saying that, you know, there's got to be, when he was talking about the notaries and both sides agreeing to, you know, agree to submit to a judgment and so forth, he's, he's talking about a much more contained arena no, I should qualify that a bit. I mean, there are pamphleteers and so forth. I guess it's kind of the, mm-hmm. the social media of the day. But um, uh, uh, perhaps the challenge of, of kind of keeping the uh, the envelope f- for the disputes, it's much harder to manage that these days. I guess so, but it's but it's frustrating. Like, I, you know, you think about the... Con- you know, I'm thinking about the Bible. Um, the Bible's an example of this where... The Bible is a collection of documents, and there was a time long ago when people debated what documents should be in and out of the Bible. John Chrysostom, one of the most famous preachers in Christian history, refused to ever preach on the book of Revelation, the right, Revelation right. of John, because he did not believe it should have been included in the in the canon. Indeed. Right? Indeed. And, then, and then in our modern context... You know, we are a church where we decided, um, and again, I suppose we're all obedient to this decision that we did not want to have a new book of common prayer, but rather a book of alternative services, you know, accepted in 1985, and it's now 2020, and we still do not have a new prayer book. Our, <laughs> the book of common prayer for the Anglican Church of Canada is was, uh, was I forget what the term is, I don't know, it's not published, accepted, whatever the word is, in 1962. Yeah. No. You know, uh, it's almost, almost, it's, it's almost as old as I am. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's from, I mean, it's, it's the strangest thing. And, 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 and so we have this sort of, and of course what's happening is, um, these days to just stick to the text of the BAS, the book of alternative services is actually quite a feat. Um, many churches, including ours have all sorts of various, uh, we all follow the rubrics to a degree, but there's a lot of 
variation these days. I mean, how wonderful would it be to have a series of debates and discussions on a new prayer book and then have the entire church, the Anglican Church of Canada, come together and accept one prayer book? With Is that even possible? Well, that's <laughs> a very good question. I, 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 Like you, I've been to lots of ordinations where candidates all promisely, promise solemnly to obey the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the Anglican Church of Canada, but they don't. Yeah. <laughs> good people, but, I, but um, when it comes to things liturgical, um, is there an actual order that's to be followed, or is it kind of a directory of choices from which you make decisions based on your own lights? Uh, no. I'm right. more of the com- common prayer school, but um, I'm not sure that's a robust tradition these days. No, and it's a different thing. I just think, but if you want, but if you want that obedience back, then you got to really open the floodgates of debate. Yeah. Well, and you know, on the pr- on prayer book things, uh, general synod has certain principles for revision. I think back from 2010, and there are pieces of work underway on different aspects of yeah. revision, but uh, when, whether we ever get a new prayer book remains to be seen. Now, of course, you know, to, uh, it's to the good. That, you know, in some respects, it's good that these kinds of things move slowly because uh, we're dealing with deep-seated um, symbolic structures that shape people's lives, and, and you know, we don't, that kind of thing... Yeah can't change quickly um no and if you're if you're by the way if you're listening to this and you are not familiar with the the anglican church of canada or the anglican tradition yeah our tradition um sort of the core the core foundational sort of structure that sort of holds us together in some ways is is our prayer book Mm -hmm. for the most part um that that's um if you're you know, if you're Lutheran, the the works and ideas of Martin Luther have a sort of central place. There's other Christian traditions where they really sincere. There's certain books in the Bible that are foundational, or or certain um, clerical orders, certain certain letters from from bishops or documents from senior bishops, or you know. But for us, it's it's the prayer book. So when we when we change the prayer book, um, we're really changing who we are as an Anglican church. Yeah. And it's a very, very high, um, high stress, highly important thing to do. And it's, it's not to be taken lightly. Indeed. Yeah. I don't know if I did that. I don't know if I, I'm not, I'm not the, uh, director of Anglican studies, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I give that a pass. Or... Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Okay. Here we go. Let's go. Okay. Number four. There's no point in asking you whether you are willing for an already existing court to decide in all controversies, as it was among the Jews, and the man that doeth presumptuously in not hearkening unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy 17.12 You've already made clear to us what you think of the Queen's Court of High Commission, which is the same sort of court as that which the Jews had, though with less power. You might prefer the dispute to be determined by a church council. Beza, in his next to the last book on these matters, says that he is weary of these wranglings and skirmishes by tongue and pen, since, he says, these controversies have simply become brawls, 
and wishes that some common assembly of churches might put these debates to an end. <laughs> let's go, well, let's go yes. on to the five. In the meantime, shall there be no doings? Yes, there are the weightier matters <laughs> of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, Matthew 23, 23. These things we ought to do, and these things, while we contend about less, we leave undone. Happy those whom the Lord comes and finds doing them, instead of quarreling about doctors, elders, and deacons. Mm. If you have no choice but to keep promoting your Presbyterian discipline, do what wise men do when trying to repeal something in Parliament. Spend the time carefully re-examining your cause and thoroughly considering what you labor to overthrow. Equity, reason, the law of nature, God, and man all favor the established political order until a definitive decision is made against it. So it is only just to demand willing obedience of you, and it would be perverse of you to deny it. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if I we like attended more to justice, mercy, and faith. Right, people, and that's you're right, and that's an easy counter argument to everything we we're saying. Is you know what, Jeff? Maybe the church has been busy, you know, responding to all sorts of various causes and issues in our world, and you know, there's just there's a lot of bigger fish to fry than debating the merits of the BAS, in, right? Indeed. Or if there's any value in those debates, it's only insofar as they lead to justice, mercy, and faith. Who knows? Maybe you know, you yes. know the church might yet be. Uh, accused of being a hotbed of charity or something like that, you know, but (laughs) hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's finish up this chapter. I'm not saying that men should observe laws which in their hearts they are convinced contradict the word of God, but for the time being, you are bound to suspend your judgment. To do otherwise would be to offend God and trouble his church unnecessarily. Perhaps you have some reasons to think ill of our laws. Are these reasons based upon necessary demonstrative arguments or mere probabilities only? I defined a necessary demonstrative argument as one that, once explained to anyone and understood, the mind cannot help assenting. I will cheerfully admit that any one reason like this sets the conscience at full liberty to disobey. After all, the Church's public approval of the current state of affairs is a mere probable argument in their favour and therefore must yield to any necessary argument against them. If the best of you can show any such proof in all the books you have written so far, by all means do so. But if all you have is a probable cause, is there any reasonable conclusion against which some good counter-argument might not be made? I ask you, is it right that after the public has made a decision, obedience need not be required just because Tom, Dick, and Harry led by some probable argument, should say, I do not approve of it and will not obey it. You will answer that the laws of our church are not only condemned by the opinion of a private individual, but by thousands, even by some who are in public office. However, when the public body agrees to anything, everyone else's judgment in comparison is private, even if he is in public office. Peace and quietness are not possible unless the probable voice of an entire society or body politic should overrule all private judgments within the same body. God, the author of peace, not of confusion in the church, 
must be the author of these peaceable decisions made by men who have agreed to think and to do as their church decrees until they have sufficient reason requiring them to act differently. Hmm. It's funny, like, where, where, where his time is similar to ours is um, he's addressing, I think he's addressing people challenging norms that have not been challenged possibly in, in centuries, you know, um, I, I, I remember, um, I was listening, you know, you know, that, uh, philosopher Zizek, uh, Slavoj Zizek. No, I don't actually. But... Okay. He's like this, uh, you can find him online. He's, okay. he's, a, he's very progressive. And one of the things he talks about is he defends the, the, um, the idea of dogma and he, he describes dogma as essentially certain, um, norms that everybody everybody essentially agrees on it's for us to function as a society there are just certain dogmatic norms that we all abide by like um not harming children yes. right like it doesn't matter what your what your ethical position is on an issue if it involves harming children it's just you're just wrong like there's no defensible version of that and there's there's certain dogmatic assertions we have there's all sorts of baseline dogmatic norms and one, of course, one of the frightening things today in 2020 is one of the dogmatic norms is supposed to be, for example, um, uh, anti-Semitism or racism is unacceptable in public discourse, full stop. Yes. You can't use the racism um, as a way of supporting an argument. It's, it's just wrong. And, and for most of both of our lives, that, that's been a dogmatic norm. I think it's still a dogmatic norm today in the vast majority of the world, but there are exceptions now, which is striking and terrifying right Clearly. and I, I i feel like that some of what's going on in his world is is that that he has to defend you know he has to defend laws like this is we have laws in our society and it's not bad no <laughs> it's, it's to the good it's not bad for us as a society to accept the law as a as a thing <laughs> no it's not it's not bad at all um After all, he says, um, you know, you, you, there's a necessary, oh, well, it's not his word, but, you know, in, in a sense, you have to sacrifice what might be your private opinion in favor of the corporate good. Once a, once a public yeah. has made a decision, obedience has to be required. Um, even if, you know, even if you're a member of parliament or a, bishop or something once the, the public body agrees to something then you have to go with it because god is the author of peace yeah. not of confusion and there's something wonderful about that there's something wonderful about being in a society where we can make collective decisions and debate very um hotly debated topics and then come together as a society and, and, and all stand behind one decision or another decision and then and then and then the next day live in peace yeah. there's a there's a mutual you know? forbearance that's required if you're going to live in a, in a community yeah I mean that's and it, you could just you know that that in in chunks certain times in human history that's sort of just an accepted norm like oh yeah absolutely we'll, we'll debate these topics when you know for a time and then we'll return to sort of our normal lives he's obviously living in a time where that's not the case, that there's sort of a, a real call to um, dismantle society. 
Right. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's worth remembering. Uh, I mean, we live in a relatively, in our context, a, a relatively safe and secure kind of society, but um, not so much in Hooker's day. Uh, you know, even mm. one of the sermons of Thomas Cramner that uh, survives is a sermon concerning the time of rebellion. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the chaos and disorder and rebellion always seems to be just lurking and uh, they know by contrast you know by contrast they know the good that comes when things are not in riot and turmoil Um, Mm -hmm. hence this uh, emphasis on we need to make decisions and then stick by them because the alternative is you know the jungle Mm mm-hmm Interesting. What an interesting book to read in our time today. It really is. Um, yeah. Whether we can sum it up necessary for parents even to listen to one another, let alone getting to the decision, um, instead of shouting past one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny where it, it sort of directs us. I mean, I, it's it's um, like I feel like we're we're living in a time where there's a series of sort of. I mean, it, there's a lot of really passionate voices, and we agree with some passionately we disagree with some passionately it's such a it's such a fascinating he has such a fascinating voice or would have in our in our own time of saying what if instead of trying to seek out the voice that you passionately agree with the most seek out who would who could be the most stable objective and wise judge in this time well you know that that we could all agree upon you know yeah. Recall, you know, the uh, we're, as everybody has heard, we're, we're working from a modernized version of, of Hooker, and uh, the authors of this translation call this preface, you know, radicalism when reform becomes revolution. It's, mm. I thought, oh, it's worth rem- remembering uh, just how high the stakes were for them, as um, indeed we may say the stakes are high for us as well. Uh, how are you going to... Uh, navigate the line between reform and just chaotic revolution yep one and i mean and it's important i think we mentioned it probably in earlier episodes but this this is a text that that precedes the english civil war yes yes right it's not it's not after the civil war it's before so he's he's writing in a time you know yeah I, i i i don't know how many years after he uh, writes this that the civil war commences, but he clearly it's all all the, uh, so all those 1640s. issues are. Yeah. So. Uh, well. It's good. We'll carry on next time. We're we're getting near. Yeah, the next end. time. Yeah, so we're getting near the end of the preface, but we have four books to start, so don't worry. We have <laughs> There's more lots, than enough content. Lots to go. I hope. Um, yeah, so it's in the next few chapters, he, he for some reason summarizes what's to come in, in the next chapter, and then there's an incredibly long um, final sort of summation, I think, uh, before, the end of the, before the end of the preface. Yeah, he's he's so, being a good teacher here. He's going to let, let <laughs> us know what's to come so we can be ready for it. So we'll have to get, a, get two cups of coffee for next Absolutely. week. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, thank you to all of our our listeners, all three of you. And (laughs) 
<laughs> and tell we'll, your uh, friends. And we'll, we'll tell your friends. Yes, indeed, please. And uh, and we'll talk to you all uh, all next week. Right. Bye bye now. Okay.